Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. We are back with Ben Taylor for part two. You know, Ben, at the end of the last session, you know, you wanted to give a little sneak peek, and I think you you made the statement, I don't trust the customer. So why don't, why don't we start with that? Explain that. Yeah, so I'm kind of torn with that statement because I've also said all my good ideas come from my customers or they come from the less technical users. And so you can get product inspiration ideas, but I think sometimes the customer can be very misleading. And and I, I think the classic example for anyone doing a startup, when you get into these bigger accounts, they can kind of beat you up on feature requests. So think of your largest customers and the types of requests that they make. Are they really features that'll generalize for the rest of your customers or are you becoming a consultant for that? Are you custom building features and code? And we talk about death by feature, but the, the thing I was getting at was you can be misled by customer feedback on a product idea. And I think it's better to measure behavior. So rather than just asking your opinion, do you like this feature? Do you like this product? I'd rather figure out what the KPIs are or what is the high level behavior where it'd be really obvious that I was succeeding with the product, whether it was time to complete a task or the number of individuals that you shared the product with because it was delightful, not just a thumbs up, thumbs down. So when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about API usage. So if I design an API, and if you think it's great, I want you to prove that it's great. Like, and this gets into yeah, like no, template. I, I, mean, I, I understand. I can see the same thing with features, right? I mean, working at Pendo, it's, it's always interesting because we get a lot of data, you know, during trials, customer engagements, uh, what have you. And one of the things that, that we've noticed, and you can try this at home, really, if you have some way to capture usage data, is you can ask customers like what they do in their product. Like, what do their users do? And talk to the different users. And you can compare them with what the data shows you that they actually do do. In a, a large number of cases, you'll find there's some huge disparities. Like, I remember talking to some users. So, like, yeah, we log into this, you know, XYZ application, you know, a couple times a week, you know, maybe every day. And then the data is like, well, maybe once every two weeks on average kind of thing. Uh, you know, big differences. You know, I, I know one client who was talking about, you know, the PM was talking about deprecating some features and the salespeople didn't want him to do it. He's like, our biggest client, you know, uses this stuff all the time. They love it talk to the biggest client and they're like, well, yeah, a couple of my users are really big into this particular area of the product. Then you look at the data and you realize that those users have never used it. Like you might've used it once, like a year ago. I haven't used it in a long period of time. So you kind of get, see how like, especially when you have telephone in that one case, right? You have users talking to the buyer, who's talking to the salespeople, who's talking to the PM saying that this thing's important. You know, you get bad data that way. Yeah. Well, to pull in that telephone thread, that also happens with uh, tutorials. So if you can get 30 prospects in a room and you walk them through the feature, you walk them or the product, you walk them through example and you make them go through your example. You know, let's say we're doing machine learning or something. They go through your example and they solve it. I think a, someone who's naive with product might celebrate that. They might say, we had 30 engineers in here or we had 30 prospects and they all solved this problem in record time but it was my problem. It was the problem I, I spoon fed them the problem they did it. And can they go solve a new problem? Can they go leave this training session and can they go 
solve a problem in the real world. And that this actually reminds me of a, I can kind of be a little bit of a troll. I like to be an antagonist and kind of get people to react. And I remember I've seen I, that. Yeah. You've seen that it, it, I think it causes useful discussions. So I was going through the lunch line at a conference and you're looking at people's badges. And I saw these two individuals going through the line with Google badges. So I asked if I could sit with them and it, apparently they are in charge of Google's cloud certification. And you could tell they, they took a lot of pride in that. So if you want to be certified in the Google cloud, Amazon does this too. I don't know if Microsoft does, but this is common, right? Yeah. I'm going to certify. Yeah. I'm going to certify you to be a, a cloud user. And they were, they were talking about the certification program and I kind of casually said, that's really too bad. And they, they kind of looked at me like, what, what are you talking about? Cause normally I think people gush over Google and how amazing they are and how they want to work there. And wouldn't that be great? And I said, that's really too bad. And they looked at me kind of confused and said, what do you mean? I said, it's really too bad that no one will ever value your work. And they're like, what? Like, what, what are you saying? I said, well, I'm an employer. I hire people and, and I would never value a Google certification. And, and I'm not trying to just be a dick. I'm trying to like kind of open up this conversation. And, and the conversation that was being opened was, I don't trust that they can solve my problems. Like, because if I go through some Amazon certification, did I just go through the recipe book? Like, can I really solve a new problem? And so it actually caused this really useful discussion that where there's value on both sides, where I'm saying from the employer's perspective, I don't think you can solve a new problem for me. And that's what I need. And then they kind of realized from the certification side that, well, maybe people are solving cookie cutter problems. And how can we like give them a project? Like, if you're an employer, how can I convince you I'm awesome with Amazon? I'm going to show you a project. There were no bumpers. It was out there in left field. I built this Lambda stack. I wasn't just copying a recipe book. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think in general, that's an issue with education. Like how well can you abstract away from, you know, the courseware and problems you've been given to solve general problems in that domain space? Yeah. But it, it also gets all the way back to product where you can have a great product, great net, or you can think you have a great product and great network and get people in to train them. But what do they actually do later? What do they actually do for new problems, new scenarios? And I've loved Amazon because I felt like their stuff was very intuitive. And I've used other cloud platforms like Microsoft and IBM, and I, I get very confused. I don't really know what the next step is. I don't know how to get from A to Z. Or I feel like Amazon, you give that to a new student, and as long as they've you know got some basic competencies, they'll figure it out. They'll spin up an instance. And, and I know the other cloud providers are getting better, but I think Amazon won in a big way out of the gate because they were very easy to use and they made a lot of sense. You didn't get buried in documentation. Yeah. I mean, I I can see too the certification programs and training in general, moving into product, right? It's one thing to go out there and take a course, right? And it used to be, you know, pre-COVID world, we'd be sitting in a classroom or something, right? And, And the more you can embed that in the product itself and have you actually going through and building out, you know, training and, having people actually consume it or going through and building things as part of the certification in the product itself. And maybe your own instance of the product is really powerful. Yeah. And I'd be curious what your reaction is to this. So one of the things I used to think about is I would criticize a product's ease of use by the number of words in their documentation. So if I can have a product with less words describing how to use it in my documentation versus these really deep products with 30,000 words and technical documentation. I don't know if that's a general rule or if that's true, but what do you think about some of these products that have minimal documentation, hopefully because they don't need it versus these other technical products where if you want to dive in and hit an API, 
you look at the documentation and you just, your initial reaction is, oh no, like this is a project. This is not. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you hit it. The key is that the additional documentation is not needed. The worst is when you have sparse documentation and you can't solve the problem <laughs> and you have nowhere to go for help. So I mean, I'm a big fan of, you know, obviously making things intuitive, easy to use. Less documentation is more powerful as long as you can still accomplish the goals. And it's always great. I mean, I'm a big fan, as you might guess, of having a documentation embedded in the app, right? Where I can pull it up as I need it, if I need it too. You know, what is yeah. this question mark there that explains to me why it's relevant to me and what this particular, you know, description means or what this particular, you know, column does or what it's showing. All that kind of stuff is particularly useful, I think, um, being able to pull things on the fly. Because the worst thing ever is having to go find out that, A, you have to look it up and generally Google it. But B, if you can't find the answer or aren't finding it easily, God forbid I have to go ask support. That process kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely relate with that. I think in the end, like, not to oversimplify it, but I feel like everyone just kind of wants to budget their time so if I'm trying to set, push you a new product on you to test it or figure it out, you're trying to figure out, is this going to cost me an hour of my time, 10 minutes of my time, or is this going to be multi-day? Like, is this going to be, because you kind of see products that fit in those different buckets where if you just want to do an initial test, a hello world, you're looking at multi-day versus the products where it's, no, you copy this, do this, you get this endorphin hit or you get this result and you did it all in less than 10 minutes, those can be a lot more inviting, especially if you're convinced before you try. Because I think that's always the thing you're trying to figure out before you try. Do I think I can get to the other side of this quickly? I, so I was teasing NVIDIA, they had their TX2 chip that came out. And they had, I think you can still find it online if you search for it. And so it's called two days to value with the TX2. So they're essentially saying, I will ship you a TX2 NVIDIA compute chip. And if you go through this tutorial, detailed tutorial, in two days, you will be live. In two days, you'll be doing something. And I was complaining to them. And I was saying, you know, your audience, or they're made up of a bunch of cloud folks. And we don't, our attention span is 10 minutes. And so like this two day thing is just this Everest. But it was interesting because they're coming from embedded systems, where embedded systems, that was amazing. Like yeah. Two days versus two weeks. Because I was complaining about it, just saying this is a nightmare that I just never want to get the other side of this. And then I talked to some folks over L3 and they were saying like two days is amazing because they're dealing with, they're used to embedded systems. Yeah. You know, it all depends on your perspective and expectations, right? Two days to being a doctor would be uh, good for, I guess, <laughs> for the rest of us. <laughs> I'd be a fan of a robot doctor. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if it, uh, if you knew it was going to be competent, Absolutely. So one of the things we were talking about when we went down this, you know, path uh, from I don't trust the customer, you talked a little bit about, you know, some of the metrics and or at least hinted at it. And it made me think of our, you know, talking about the discussion about NPS, right? The industry split on NPS to some extent. I think there's more people that are for it than against it, but there's some vocal people that are against it. What are what are your thoughts on NPS? At HireView is a big deal. The net promoter score customers, it was easy for them to find needles in the haystack. So customers that are having an issue, you know, potentially at risk of churning, they could find those quickly. They could, they could look at the customers that had really high NPS scores. So, so you have your NPS score as a product. For HireVue, they actually, their customers had their own NPS scores using the HireVue product because they can brand it. They can put their own content in there. 
And so if an airline is getting a bad NPS score, it didn't necessarily mean because it was higher reviews fault. It meant they'd created a bad template or a bad experience. So you can imagine Qualtrics having something very similar. If you're Nike and you're using Qualtrics, you could have a bad NPS score, but it's because you had a bad survey. You, you had bad content on the Qualtrics platform. And so I think that's not really hitting on the key part of your question because you're trying to kind of find product issues, but at higher view and something like Qualtrics, you can find customer issues that th- these customers have really good NPS scores for all their users. And these customers have very, very bad NPS scores. What's the difference? Is it a different industry, different branding, different use case, different users? Like maybe you'll find out because some products have a distribution of users where you might have engineers using it or data scientists or a variety of users. And so you might find out that, well, we get really high NPS scores with a data scientist but really low NPS scores with an engineer. And, yeah, absolutely. NPS and, and, is going to vary a ton by role. Yeah, and you don't know what you don't know. And so as soon as you know that, you now can react to it. You can say, well, why or what are we going to do about it? Or how could we improve that? Or do you want to? You know, yeah. it might be some of the roles of users are just not your core users. So maybe you focus on who it was built for. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me of early stage startup. If you have more than one persona or one user, that can be a very scary thing. Because I think when you're starting out, you're, you're really trying to nail the one persona, the one vertical, the one use case. And then I think talking to new founders or people that are venturing into product, it's funny because whatever your product idea is, it's a pretty safe bet to say it's wrong. The, the version, version one is wrong. Because you look at all these companies and startups, they, they put the first version out, they get feedback, and they, they iterate, they iterate, they iterate, and then they nail it. Like you look at Airbnb and all these different companies... So there, there's usually high confidence that your first product version is wrong until you get feedback coming from a customer. But you have to be careful what that feedback is because they might try to morph you into a product where it's a place you don't want to be, where you're just a, a custom bolt-on for them. There's no market for you. You end up being a custom bolt-on for one customer. And that, that can be kind of a tempting pull for young startups. Yeah, you definitely want to stay away from the, I'm building a product for one customer because that's that's not a product company, that's a consulting company. Yeah, at a discounted rate, right? Yes, yes, (laughs) at a highly discounted rate, as it typically is. Yeah, minimum wage. Hey, so one of the things we we had on our list to talk about was biases, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about biases in AI and and data. And, you know, do data science and data-driven or data-informed PMs have an ethical responsibility on how data is collected, used, presented, and used to train. Yeah, so I think, so the the debate with bias and AI ethics, it, it's kind of unfortunate where we are today because when you look in the news, you see a lot of examples of companies that have done things poorly where they've made big mistakes. And I, and I don't need to mention those companies' names. Like people are probably aware there are big companies out there, respectable companies that have made big mistakes having a sexist resume model or racist gender model, or like there's all these bad examples. And I feel like that can make people feel pretty discouraged that if these really smart companies are failing, it must be a really hard problem. And I think that's frustrating because it's not that hard of a problem. So a few things to think about. Humans will guarantee bias. So if I'm collecting data from humans, whether it's HR data, performance data, any data I'm getting is going to have some type of bias. And with AI, as long as you're being proactive and not reactive, you can address that bias. So at higher view, we would get data sets from customers that had 
biases, they were sexist, they were racist. And we could train AI systems on them that were within the US guidelines that where that bias had been greatly reduced and we could ship them into production. And this is a much bigger discussion. I'll just give you the 30 second kind of overview on what the AI system is doing. So the AI system that is going to predict some outcome to de-bias the system, it will also try to predict what you're the most concerned about. And so I was giving a talk to a large bank and I, at the beginning of the talk, I said, raise your hand if you think it's okay to predict race. And no hands came up. Like people in the bank are thinking, what on earth? Like, wh- who is the speaker? Why would he ask something so upsetting? And what I went on to show is that by being able to predict race, like if you have the labels, great. But if I can predict race, gender, and age, I can actually figure out what features are predictive of those things, like name, fraternity, sorority, like any element of your resume. I can find out what allowed me to predict race, gender, and age, and I can remove it from your resume. And so what's left over? It's left over all the features, like definitely not your name, because we've seen humans, they've done studies where a human will change their name from Joe to Jose and get more callbacks on Joe, which is unfortunate. That's the human process. And so AI would immediately detect, I'm removing Jose, or I'm just going to remove your name in general. No names in a resume. Yeah. I mean, names is an obvious one, right? What, what yeah. else? Well, that, that's the problem with humans versus machine is names is an obvious one, but you going to this fraternity or working at this job or even having these language elements in your resume, a human may not be able to catch that that has a racial tie, but AI will catch it all. AI will catch all the features that have any impact for predicting what you care about. So I kind of my mantra or the thing I say with AI ethics is if you can predict it, you can protect it. Yeah. And by predict it, you mean making sure that there's no unconscious bias on the part of the, the recruiter or the screener. In yeah. This case, right. Yeah. But there's, I think when we think of bias, we think of race, gender, and age, but there's so many biases. Like um, beauty is an, a very clear bias. We see beauty in selection where people that are more attractive, men and women, are more likely to get selected than those that are less attractive. So that was a talk I gave in Chicago three or four years ago, where I showed on a public data set that there's a huge advantage for being more attractive. But whether or not you have glasses, the list goes like humans have so many biases. An appraiser has biases. So like a human appraiser, if I'm appraising your home, I'm actually going to take biases into account based on the market. So is the market going up too high where I need to undervalue your home or is the market going too slow or I need to try to hold values? So as an appraiser, we humans are very emotional creatures. And so I'm injecting my emotions into appraising your home. Or what if I, what if there's something about you or your home that I don't like and I'm giving you an appraisal? you know, what if I see a picture of your family and I don't like it and I'm giving you an appraisal? Like there's so many things. Humans can't be objective. We can't be rational creatures. Just look at the media. We're very emotional. And so AI kind of brings that objectivity, that accountability, allows you to be proactive, but also allows you to inspect any process where humans, you can't inspect it. What's a strange bias you found? You talked about, you know, beauty and, but what's one you weren't expecting maybe? Hmm. I think glasses was one. Where glasses imply, what biases attached to that? Intelligence? Studiousness? Well, so this, <laughs> so I want to be very clear. This is coming outside higher view because I don't want people to be like, oh my gosh, like what was going on? But building some of these attraction models, which was something I did personally, like this isn't attached to a company, like Ben Taylor built attraction models um, out of curiosity. And we found that having glasses, the AI deemed you less attractive. And the thing I'm hoping this is doing for some of the listeners is I want them to be upset by that. 
I want them to say, I think glasses are attractive. That's great. Congratulations. So when AI is building an attraction model, it is building a model based on society, based on averages. So they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's true for you. It's true for me, but it's not true for LA. It's not true for Chicago. It's not true for like a much bigger body of people. Does that make sense? And so when I say glasses are less less attractive, if you find glasses attractive, that's fantastic. But in general, you'll get a hit coming from an AI system, which means you're probably going to get a hit coming from a large body of people. And so if you can wear contacts, wear contacts. But yeah, when you extrapolate across a million people's reactions, net negative glasses. Yeah, but it also depends on, I'm sure it depends on the role because you can imagine if I'm customer facing, maybe I have more pressure to wear contacts versus glasses. But if I am some developer, maybe it would go the other way. Like if I can look like a super nerd, and have some awesome glasses, then great. That might, like biases get complicated. So it really depends on the use case, the process that we're talking about. But I do think, I mean, it's interesting, you know, we're wanting to all build more, or a lot of us, I hope all of us are wanting to build more diverse workplaces, right? So how do we make sure that the algorithms are helping us do that? You know, you, you talked about an easy one where if the algorithm can identify the attributes of a race and remove those from a resume, especially when they're not relevant, like name, right? It helps you do a better job of avoiding those unconscious biases that could lead to a non-diverse workplace. Yeah. And I think there's an important thing you brought up with diversity in the workplace. Sometimes when we talk about diversity, we talk about it like it's the right thing to do. Like kind of suggesting that that's the only reason we would do it. We need diversity in the workplace because it's the right thing to do. But I'd like to take it a step further and say, sure, it's the right thing to do. But did you know that diversity can increase diversity of thought? It can increase creativity because if you're hiring a bunch of cookie cutter people into a department and they have, they have the same experience, how are you going to have people that think outside the box, outside of that box? And so I would argue that there are business incentives for having a more diverse workforce because you're going to see more creativity coming from diverse experience and that could lead to new innovation. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way until working at HireVue that there could be real business drivers tied to diversity, not just it's the right thing to do or we need to need to do it. Yeah, I completely agreed, right? There are there are definitely business drivers for having an inclusive, diverse w- workforce. I mean, in that diversity of thought, that diversity of creativity is something that's been proven. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, what mistakes do people build? Or Sorry, what, what mistakes do people make uh, when they're building AI products? What do they tend to get wrong? I'm amazed they get this one wrong, but they chase the shiny new toy. So they actually chase an AI concept or idea for a product based on a coolness factor. And so one of the jokes I came up with was, if you're ever starting a project with, wouldn't it be cool? It's a bad project. I don't need to hear the details. I don't need to hear the rest of it. Because what I'm reacting to is I already think it's not tied to business value. So you doing this cool AI widget in an app, what's the business value? for that. And if it falls into this category of unknown, that's a problem. And so when I'm thinking about AI projects, I like, I like to come up with a lot of them. Don't just come up with one. You probably have 10 of them. Like if you actually had a brainstorming session and if you had some different subject matter experts in the room with processes, you could probably come up with 10 ideas and then write different dollar signs next to them where of course you don't know the exact value, but you know, if something is a triple dollar sign versus a single dollar sign or $10 million in value versus Ten thousand dollars in value, and here and here's a clear example. So, if I'm working with an insurance company and I'm asking them, 
or if they say, do you think you could predict a swimming pool from space? Oh yeah, that sounds really cool. Do we have satellite data? Yeah, we do. Can we see, and you always want to bring the human check into the process. So can a human see a swimming pool in the satellite data? Yes, but there's a problem happening right now. The nerds are off to the races. We're nerding off to the races on, is this doable? Do we have the data? Can we do this? And we forgot to ask the most, most important question. What is this worth? Assuming we get to the other side of this, satellite swimming pool classification for insurance assessments. Assuming we get to the other side, what is the value? We should, that's the first question that should have been asked, not the technical doability. So the, the other dig that I'll bring up is, well, we may not be able to agree, agree on the value, but we can all agree that the value is greater than zero. And so that's just me being a dick again. So like the value is greater than zero, but was it worth a million or $10 million a year? No. Was it worth $100,000 a year? Um, probably not. And so why are we having this conversation? But this happens all the time. Like I've heard executives come up with bad ideas where I think sometimes we hold executives up on this pedestal where we think they're tied to you know KPIs, ROIs, growth. They're making the business work. But AI is very distracting. But at the same time, AI can be transformational. Like it can completely change a company in the right process with the right subject matter experts and SMEs working together. So talk to me about building better you know, data-informed products. You know, what advice would you give people? How would you suggest people do a better job building data-informed products? And then maybe digging you know, from there into specifically AI products. Yeah, so I think sometimes with data, we can be reactive where we're not thinking about data quality. And so we, we see lots of really, really sad examples where we'll come into a company and we'll realize that they had one of the largest data resources for a certain topic. Like you think of companies like HireVue, they've got 10 million video interviews. Like that's a huge data asset that they can leverage. And so we talk about your data IP or your data moat. And so we'll come to companies and realize they have a huge data opportunity, but the way they were processing the data, they only collected one label or maybe they, they did something to corrupt the data quality. And so a lot of companies that are getting into AI, when they actually have someone come in and take a look, they realize they're not ready. Like e- even if I, if I show up to your door with the best algorithms available, you're not ready. I'll come back in six months or I'll come back in a year. And so when you're thinking about data quality, you need organization, you need records that have all the data that matters, you need any outcomes. If humans are doing work, you want to get a return on that later. So you need to make sure you're doing a really good job with your data management. So that really helps with AI. And then I think the other point is there's kind of a lie in the data science space where we talk about data scientists, they fill these three rings where I'm good at programming, I'm good at math, and I can ramp on a domain. So are we talking about semiconductor? Are we talking about pharmaceuticals? Are we talking about insurance? We're talking about banking. I have a, a STEM background where over time I can ramp on that domain. And I think the thing I've kind of given up on is you should never pretend to be a subject matter expert. You should just invite the subject matter expert to the table. And I think the thing that can be confusing for a business is sometimes these people are not very senior. It's a technician that's worked for the company for 10 years. They're not a VP. They're not a director. They're not kind of on the peer level. And so they're left out of the meetings. But if we're talking about automating a process, if you can bring a human into the conversation that has worked that process for the last 10 years, they have really valuable experience. What is the data that matters? What's the value? How would I assess this? How would I give feedback to the system? Sometimes you get data scientists that want to own the whole thing. 
you know, I would just come in, like, this is a bad data science example. I just come into your organization and say, well, I kind of understand what you're doing there and I'm going to build a model here and it's going to go into production there. And I was never a SME. I just, I thought I was, and I never was. Do you have a framework you use to put this stuff together? Like a, a methodology or process you follow? This will be oversimplified, but I think first step is find a problem worth solving where not just the executives or the line of business people in the room agree, but you also have a SME. So I, I don't want just the executive degree. I also want the person working the process to agree that there's value here and you want to have value that is objective or measurable. It's very dangerous to work an AI project where it's not measurable. So imagine we're doing an AI marketing project. If we don't have a way to ever assess that that was useful, that's a problem. So find a problem worth solving, figure out the players that weigh in on that, and then figure out a way to measure it, measure success. And then the the final trap that I'll warn people about is they have to make the decision on build versus buy. And this is actually coming up a lot more than it did because five or 10 years ago, you obviously build it. There's nothing you can buy. You just build it, build it from scratch. The temptation still exists today to build it. And the reason people are building it is they feel pressure from their boards to create IP. They feel pressure from their boards to own the algorithms that are used. And that is naive. The reason it's naive is what is defensible about your process? So let's pretend in your organization, you have a process, you're going to automate it. You're getting very excited about it. And you say, let's get the patent attorneys in here. We're going to patent this. I'm going to go present to their board. It's going to be my first patent for this company. That's a big deal for startups because I don't know what the feelings on the ground are today, but in the past, you used to get kudos for that. I'm a startup founder. I got my first patent. Like This is important. The problem with an algorithm is that's not defensible. So if you're using XGBoost or Random Forest, that's not defensible. And if anything, you shot yourself in the foot by using something inferior when you could have used something much, much better and just used it on your data. And that's why I talk about it's not the algorithm that you need to protect. It's the data and the iterations. It's the number of iterations. So this is, I think this is the final key point is, did you build a model and ship it into production and you were done? Or did you do a hundred iterations this year? And most people say, well, I built one model and maybe it went into production, maybe it didn't. Most people don't get it into production. And that's because they went down this road of holding on tightly to the IP where they're terrified of working with an outside group because they think they have to build it from scratch. Yeah, so I don't know. How do, you, how do you react to that versus this build versus buy, especially in the AI space where the algorithms are sexy? You think there's an opportunity for IP. You don't want your customers to know or your competitors to know that you're potentially using an outside vendor. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a challenge of trying to decide what what needs to be built internally and what doesn't. Like, what's your core IP and what isn't? And I think you make a pretty strong argument that how they're you know processing the data maybe shouldn't be that core IP because there's a lot of good tech out there that they can take advantage of. Yeah. Well, and hopefully I can add fear to your listeners because I've written machine learning patents. Like at HireView, we did a whole bunch. And when it gets to the algorithm side, so I've done the patent, I've done, you know, this patent is being applied in this use case and we're trying to, we're working with patent attorneys, but when it gets to the algorithm, the thing I ended up doing the most that I really liked is I would say, I have function F, which is unknowable undescribable, and I have input X, which is unknowable, undescribable, to produce output Y, which is unknowable, undescribable. And here's a very long list of all possible examples of all of that. And so my algorithm, because I I have to protect you from coming up with deep learning version two, or I have to predict, like if you come up with a new algorithm that I haven't, that has not existed, I need to have something so general that you violate my patent. 
I would be a fool to say I use XGBoost with this type of filtering on this use case. That's fantastic. Like someone could reach out to me as a consultant and I would immediately get around your patent tomorrow. Does that make sense? Like yeah, you, need, yeah. you need to be at the 100,000 foot ceiling view of inputs and outputs. And then that gets back to the algorithm. What are you actually like? You re- well, and yeah. I'd argue is that even patentable at that point? I mean, so especially in today's day and age. So there was a major change in patent law with 101. So it used to be much easier to get software patents. And yeah, yeah. then, and so I, I went through that where software patents were easier and then the 101 changed. And then we had to really work with our patent attorneys to go back and forth where our patents would get rejected and we'd have to do modifications. I think things are better now. So it works if it's applied to a very specific process and it works even better if it is, what's the terminology? If it's a tool, it's been a while since I've, I used to crank on patents a lot, like four years ago. It's a, with our startup, I think we did two or three. We never made full patents. We just did provisionals. So I forgot some of the terminology. It's much easier to patent a thing than it is to patent software. So if you yeah, hold up, yeah, if I hold up a device. And the more abstract it is, the harder it is too. Oh, yeah. And I, I think we would try to nail it to a very specific use case for a very specific industry. So we we'd talk about a process tied to a very, very specific industry. And then we would try to phrase it or package it up as a tool where we're talking about a software process, but this could also exist as a physical tool. And this also brings up the whole patent versus trade secret. So I'm a big fan of trade secrets if it's not discoverable. Yeah, me too. Like why, why would you patent anything? If it's yeah, not- and if you're not concrete or specific in how you're solving the problem in your patent, then you you know, you lose the, it becomes potentially unenforceable. And if it becomes unenforceable, then, you know, what was the point of going through that process? Uh, and on the other side, if you make it very exact and you're, you're giving a lot of opportunity for your competitors to work around it in some way, the more specific it is, is the easier it's going to probably be to work around. And then it goes back to, if you're going to be that specific, why not just have it as a closely held trade secret as opposed to uh, a patent? Yeah. And also brings up, who is the patent actually going to protect you from? So assume you had a great patent that was discoverable. And you might disagree with this, but I would say it only protects you from your smaller competitors. Like if you actually went head to head in a major clash against a monster fang company, I would bet that you're already violating 20 of their patents. Like their patent portfolios are so big. You really want to go to war on a patent against an IBM or like some massive company where the smaller companies, your smaller competitors there could be an opportunity if you catch an imitator, like an aggressive imitator on a smaller competitor, and if you have a good patent, that that will actually do something. But for these bigger companies, I just haven't seen good examples where you win. Unless, I'm saying that like it's a general statement. I know there are examples where that is true. Like I know some people have won patent battles against Facebook or, or other things where they show like there is some copying or something. But I don't know, what, what's your reaction to that? Can you win against a bigger company? I, I think if, if you're going to win, it has to be a very cut and dried case. It has to be obvious. You have to have something that's truly novel. It has to be something that's been very specific, you know, and then you have a shot. But otherwise, I would say no. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I think you knew this. We, I can't say the name of the company, but we had, we had a legal, legal dispute with a bigger company over our branding. And our lawyer said it's going to be $90,000 to fight with no, no guarantee to win. And for a smaller startup, are you really going to spend $90,000 on your brand or your logo? Like for bigger companies, sure. Like you've invested millions of dollars into that. But for a smaller startup, it's kind of, it becomes this David and Goliath thing 
where yeah. with any any business decision, you have to figure out, you know, you were even just talking about it with the swimming pool issue, right? It's like, okay, we can solve this problem. We can fight this fight. Is it worth, is the outcome worth what it's going to cost us to do? You know, yeah. whether it's a fight or a problem or a legal dispute or a technology solution, you always have to look at that. Yeah. Well, and you just reminded me of something, um, build versus buy. I was talking to this executive who decided to build. It took six months to build. And I was able to ask the question, how would your life have been different if it had taken one week to build? So you took six months to build this thing with headcount and the risk of it not being finished. How would things have looked different if you had been able to build it in a week? And you, you could definitely see kind of his, you know, 2020 hindsight, whatever, like people are always smarter when they look in the past, but you could definitely see his reaction to kind of the, oh shoot, like what would that have looked like if yeah. he had figured that out? I mean, people don't always think about that, the, the time component and what the lost time means in the build-by decision. So Yeah, but also the pressure for good news for the board, you know, yeah. it's principal's office every quarter. So we talked about some stuff, some advice. Do you have any other advice for startups that want to build in the AI space? I think I think sometimes they get too focused on the technology. So we, we see this gap where you have bleeding edge technology, where you literally have white papers coming out every day. And sometimes we get the temptation to fight too close to the edge. And for a lot of these startups, it's less about the tech, it's more about the value. And so for people that are thinking about doing an AI startup, you don't need to have bleeding edge tech. You don't need to have the deepest technology on planet Earth. You just need to have a use case, maybe a niche use case or something that offers clear value to someone. I guess the other advice, it... I think startups are interesting because it's kind of, you learn so much through trial and error and kind of the refiner's fire. And the other thing I'm very sensitive to is this concept of urgency versus progress or urgency versus being strategic. Because you can imagine if you're a startup, you can't be strategic forever because you're holding your breath, like you're going to run out of money. But you also can't chase urgency like the house is on fire. Because if you chase urgency like the house is on fire, are you really working on features that are going to have a big impact on future customers? Or are you just trying to do emergency consulting on existing customers? And it, I think the biggest gap to kind of maybe end on or think through is how do you get inside your customer's head? How do you really understand their use case and their problem? You can interview them. You can go meet with them. I was talking to another founder where he actually became his customer. So for a whole year before entering that space, he entered that. So he actually started a business as a, a car dealer for an entire year. And then he built a SaaS company to sell to car dealers. And the VCs loved it for good reason. Because what does he know about his customer, right? Like, because if I'm pitching to you and I'm like, well, I'm going to go chase down this car dealership and sell them SaaS and there'll be this amazing solution. You're going to be like, well, okay, do you understand the problem? Do you understand the, like, you're going to ask kind of the classic one-on-one questions where you're going to have low confidence that I actually know the problem yet, but maybe after three, four or five iterations, if I'm good, I'll figure it out. But if I come to you and tell you that I've, I've been my customer for a year, what, what does that do to your confidence? You're like, oh, and you understand what were some of the problems you had? Well, these were the five problems we had. This is the biggest one and I'm addressing it. And I already have a commit. You know, I have one or two, three commits of prospects because I'm communicating this problem in a way they understand it. Like it's, it's all about understanding how do you get into the head of your customer as fast as possible? How do you understand their problem? And, and AI companies fail a lot of times because we sell with an AUC score, an R value, an accuracy. We're talking stats rather than talking KPIs. And so yeah. a, a very seasoned founder in the AI space 
if you ask them to talk about their pitch or their value prop, there won't be a single statistical mention. It's just industry known KPIs. I reduce callbacks by 10%. I do this by 5%. Like it's, it's jargon that you know, that as a prospect, you understand. You know, I, I think there's a huge amount of value to having a founder that's obsessed about the problem he's trying to solve. And, and maybe obsessed is a strong word, but I'm, I'm not sure it is. No, I think it's, I think it's needed. Like you, you, you need that. You will, for one, you need that obsession to survive because start, you talk to any founder going through a startup and they go through kind of the, the highest and lowest points of their life. You know, they, it looks like they're going to win a, the biggest contract ever. They're on the moon. They're, they're hiring. They're on the moon. And then they, they miss out on the biggest contract or they're firing and, yeah. or they have, you know, they, they need to raise and they're running out of money. You know, they're not getting the term sheets in time. And so I think to kind of survive that storm, you need that obsession. I think there's something very beautiful about startups. Just the, the, the saying product market fit sounds so simple, but it's like this, it's this terrible nightmare that even the, with these conversations, which are helpful, and I know other guests that you have, like there's so much experience that you talk through product market fit. It sounds easy, but it's the impossible problem. And the people that make progress to the other side of it, those are the ones that build successful companies that grow. Yeah, it definitely is a tough problem. And you have to think about what you need to do to get there uh, and how you measure progress to get there. And that can be a challenge. Let's, let's talk a little bit about hiring, you know, because you've often posted about the quality of data scientists. <laughs> in no uncertain terms. You know, what quality do you look for data scientists when you're hiring them? Yeah, I think the biggest quality is individuals that can get past a blocking point. So when I worked at HireVue, the people I hired were very technical. They, they all had PhDs in physics, smart people, but now they're working in a software use case and they could get blocked on, they just get blocked. Like if you're a developer or you're working AI, what's the likelihood that you're gonna get blocked on a hard problem? Well, it's guaranteed. It's 100%. You're going to run into some new API, some new software stack, some Docker issue. You're going to run into something, you're going to get blocked. And the thing I valued most were the individuals that could get around it. And that either means you're really good at using Google, Stack Overflow, working in an online community, finding YouTube tutorials, or it's that obsession that can get around it. Because I found the thing that is very exhausting is mentoring. Like, or, like if you have to mentor where you're spoon feeding people, or you're kind of you're pulling them instead of them pulling you, then what happens to your emotional capital? Like you're emotionally, you feel depleted. But if you have people that are insanely obsessed, where every time we meet on our one-on-one, I'm teaching you, or I'm telling you, I found this new algorithm would be great for our use case. Then you feel great. You feel like, well, Ben's always going to be on on the ball. He's going to be, he won't get blocked. Like if anyone's not going to get blocked, it's going to be Ben. So I just think a lot about kind of this obsession, blocking, getting to the other side of stuff. Cause AI is such a huge topic. No one's going to know all of it, but the people that are obsessed will know more of it. And we see a lot of data scientists. They like the title. They like the salary. It's almost like they're trying to just meet the minimum. They're trying to just measure up to get that title or get in the door. And those are the ones I'm, I have no interest in working with. Well, what, what's, uh, I know we're, we're getting toward the end of session two with Ben Taylor. I got three more questions left for you, mostly about Ben, but first a question about what do you see in the future? What trends do you see happening in tech? I think one of the big trends we see is we're standing on the shoulders of giants and just look at Docker and Amazon, like the stuff that a smart full stack developer can do in a weekend, compare that to 10 years ago. 
it's like Twitter, Twitter clone in five minutes. And so this is true with AI and other things. And so the stuff that takes a principal consultant today in AI to do, I would say a junior engineer will be able to do that five years from now, 10 years from now. So I think that's really exciting. What are we going to be building? Like think about the company that you've worked on and built or the company that I was working on in 10 years. Are you just going to have a conversation with your home about, you know, this is what I'm kind of imagining. And then you get some UX mocks that were all developed by AI and you're trying to kind of AB test those in the wild. Like, I don't even think we can imagine what the future looks like for product development, but the promise is it'll be faster. Yeah. I mean, you, you can see some of that with the whole low code, no code movement, right? Too, with the idea of, can you abstract away some of the backend complexities of whatever you happen to be doing? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So um, staying on the subject of Ben, your favorite product. My favorite product. I have one recently that I just downloaded on my phone. I want to make sure I give them credit. True bill. I hate finances. I hate tracking my finances. I hate recurring expenses because they're just like these nasty little things that get hidden in your financial records or like, you know, they, they can, I've had recurring expenses exist for six months and I find out about it and something stupid or like you sign up for some music service with Microsoft that you didn't want. And, and my kids will do bullshit expenses on Xbox on like Roblox and other things where now I feel like with this app, I catch them immediately and I can go dispute the charge or go yell at my kids. And I've been able to knock down all these recurring expenses. So that that's one that I like lately. I, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. If for anyone doing podcasting, I'm a fan of OpenReel. That's a new one. Like I haven't checked that out. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. So I, I've been a fan of Amazon for a long time, just their cloud products. I feel like they it makes sense. So awesome. So yeah. final question for you today, Ben. You know, three words to describe yourself. Obsessed. Mad scientist. I guess obsessed and mad. A strange mad scientist. <laughs> I, 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 I celebrate the strangeness, my distance from the norm or being an outlier. Well, thanks, man. This has been awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Good to see you as always. Good to see you.